We've been looking at Nehemiah, and uh, last week Russ started us off by going through Nehemiah, introducing us to who he was. You know, there was all those different people in our leading group into into uh, Jerusalem to do something. To uh, you know, you had Zerubbabel and Ezra going in, and they actually rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt the the um, the people to get them ready. And then Nehemiah now leads sort of like a third group of people going in. And uh, I don't know if you noticed in Nehemiah, but Nehemiah. If you, as we go through Nehemiah, as you're reading the chapters, and I'm hoping you are reading them as we go along, but if you read the chapters, you'll find that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. As a matter of fact, you know, Nehemiah chapter 9 is probably the longest prayer recorded in the Bible, and it's Nehemiah's prayer. And, uh, but, but every time he does anything, you'll find he prays about it. You know, he runs into a problem, he prays about it. And, and uh, so in, I think it's just about in every chapter, you'll find that at some point, Nehemiah prays. And... Uh, so what we're going to look at today, last week we looked at uh, Nehemiah 1 and 2, where we basically introduced to Nehemiah, we were looking at the fact that, uh, um, Russ was talking about the fact that we need to be prepared to actually get out and get involved. You know, it, it's, it's not just, uh, you know, Nehemiah saw the problem, but then he was prepared to put himself in the place to say, God, use me to go out. And we'll see a little bit of that today as well. But... Uh, um, he, we, we then sort of, then now he's in Jerusalem, he's walked around the city, he had a look at it and uh, seen everything, and, and Russ actually read through both chapters. So I'm not going to do that with you today. Um, what we are going to read is we're going to read a small section of chapter 3, because chapter 3 has a lot of places that repeat itself, but then I'm going to take you through a lesson from chapter 3, which uh, I'll explain as, uh, a little bit later. Um, but uh, then we, chapter 4, we'll have a look at the, the walls and, and the opposition. So I'm going to look at the gates, the walls, and the opposition. But I actually believe that each of them has a lesson for us. And the lesson basically looks at John 14, verse 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I'm going to link the gates, the walls, and the opposition to that, um, which is more of a preach than a, than a Bible study lesson going through. But, uh, but, but uh, we'll, we'll see, see it as we go along. So if you want to turn to Nehemiah chapter 3, just going to read the first few verses. And uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, it says there, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Anyway, if you carry on, you'll find that there are groups of families building right along this wall. And I don't know if you want to put the map, the, the picture of... Uh, um, the city as we know it. And uh, so next to all of these, you'll see that there are gates all the way around. So there's the fish gate. If you start at the top, go to the top, there's the fish gate and going left anti-clockwise, the old gate, the valley gate, the dung gate, fountain gate, water gate, horse gate, east gate, and inspection gate. And uh, those were gates that were around. Now, there might have been more gates in the wall, but those were obviously the ones that needed building, that needed fixing. And it's interesting that they all have names. Now, we've got to remember that the city at this time is a bit different to the cities we have now. Cities then, of course, they had to have a wall around them because uh, they needed protection. Right now, we, we were actually got a lot of other defenses that we have and a lot of other protections that we have. We have customs and stuff like that to stop people coming in. But, uh, but in those days, your protection was that wall. That's what actually kept the world out, if you want, and, uh, and you in. As a matter of fact, the, the, the man that had the key for the gate, he was like the prime minister of the place. He would actually go and unlock the gate to let people in. That was when, when Peter was given the keys... Um, that actually quote is a quote from Isaiah where it says, you know, he's given the keys of the kingdom so that, you know, uh, what you open 
will be open and what you close will be closed. That was referring to, the, it's a quote from Isaiah where it talks about the prime minister having the keys to open the gate of the city. That guy could actually go and open and let people in and you could not go in and out unless that gate was open. And so these are the gates that you actually have that, uh, that, that are being fixed all the way around. But what's interesting is they're given names. Now, uh, just to let you know, I'm going to take you through the list of names right now. Now, this is not a Bible study. As a matter of fact, um, don't take this as sacred, what I'm giving you. This is my view, some, so interpretation I'm drawing out of it because each of those names reminded me of something and I found they actually fitted into a story. I've now got on the internet and found that dozens of people have done this. They're not all, they don't all, though, come up with the same story. So if you go find someone else, you'll find there's not totally the same as what I put it down here. But it's interesting how many of them were very similar and how many of them actually sort of crossed each other. And I just thought it was a cool way of remembering the gates of what they were doing and remembering uh, and, and seeing the gospel story in the gates that are there. So to start with, I'm just going to take us through the gates and then we will have a look at the walls and the opposition afterwards. So if you want to have a look uh, at the gates of Sodom, it starts there in verse 1. He talks there about the sheep gate. And, uh, and of course, the sheep gate. I mean, how obvious is that? I mean, for a Christian, what do we think of? John, John the Baptist in John 1.29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Uh, the next day he saw Jesus coming and he said to him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me just put this down there so I can actually keep track of it. So, um, so we know that Jesus is the lamb. He is the one that was actually given. So the sheep gate introduces us to the lamb. Now, when John said that was at the time that Jesus came in to be baptized. That was how John introduced Jesus, his ministry. When he started his ministry and he went out, from that point on, you see Jesus starting to get disciples and starting to actually go out with people. And, uh, but, but John is the one that introduced him, that actually set him on, on his path, as it were. So we see an introduction at the gate at the top. And it's interesting is nicely at the top of, the, of, of uh, Jerusalem in the north is actually the one about, uh, about Jesus uh, as the lamb. The second gate, the fish gate, if you go along to the left now, um, you have the, uh, the fish gate. Now, that interesting now, when you think of fish, what do you think of? Matthew 4, 18 to 20, where it talks about where Jesus goes and finds the brothers and he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So to me, it's a picture. This is a, as we sort of see the gates going around, that's a picture of what Jesus' ministry was. So Jesus came as the Lamb of God. He is the one God has sent. He was God, and he came to earth and became man. And then as he goes around, he collects a group of people around him, apostles and disciples, and he starts teaching them, and he teaches them to become fishers of men. He teaches them to become evangelists. He teaches them to actually go out with the gospel, and, uh, which is great. And then you go down, if you go down uh, towards the, still on the north there, you've got the old gate. Now, the old gate just reminded me of the old covenant. You know, there's the, the old gate. I'm wondering if that was one of the first gates, you know, why, why it had that name. But that just reminded me of the old covenant, which then reminded me that Jesus actually brought in a new covenant. Now, what was the new covenant he brought in? Now, when did he actually introduce the new covenant? Well, he spoke about the new covenant right from the beginning. He spoke, you know, even in the Beatitudes when he was talking, he said, uh, you know, it's uh, um, you have read that it was said, but behold, I say to you. He had authority. He could actually talk um, as if he was God because, lo and behold, he was God. <laughs> you know, it's a, he could talk with that authority. But when he went in, in, just before he went to Jerusalem, or, sorry, when he went to Jerusalem, they had the Last Supper, and uh, we we're going to do communion afterwards. And what did he do with the communion? If, if the, the scripture I've given you here is from Luke 22, 19 and 20. And he says he took the bread. He gave thanks and broke it, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after he'd eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you 
is the new covenant in my blood. That is the new covenant. You know, it's a, that is actually the start of everything. What Christ did for us on the cross, his body being broken, his blood being shed for us, that is the new covenant. And he introduced that to us so that if we will get into a relationship with him. It can only be through the new covenant. And, uh, and obviously with these gates, it also reminds me, just seeing the gates as we're sort of going through this, you know, Jesus actually turned around and he said, uh, when, they, they, he said he, when he told the disciples, he's the way, the truth, and the life, he was talking about the fact that if you want to get uh, someone to come into the sheep, it's got to be that you've got to go through the gate to do it. Anyone who comes through another way is a thief or a robber. But only, the only way to Christ is through the gate. He is that gate. He is the only way. So, so, so to me, it's, a, it's quite a nice little reference there to, to that. Um, but then we go down, and you go down to the, the, the bottom, and, or sorry, halfway down, and you see there's a valley gate. Now, what do you think of when you think of a valley? Well, the, the scripture that immediately comes to me is Psalm 23, isn't it? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But, to, uh, but a valley is also the lowest point. And, uh, the, and what a picture to me was Philippines chapter 2. It's a beautiful, so it's, a, it's a, actually a poem or a song that we seem to think that they actually had in the New Testament in Philippines 2. And it's Christ talking about it. It says uh, you know, that you have this mind of Christ, who though he was God, did not think it's, you know, um, Actually, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and be, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so you can see that Christ was God and he came down to the lowest valley point for him, where he became a man and then became a man who died. And he was prepared to do that for us. He was prepared to enter into that valley point, that lowest point. As a matter of fact, the lowest point to me in the whole world ever in, the, in eternity is when Christ was on the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, where God actually turns his back on sin. So, so Christ actually takes our sin onto himself. And, and uh, the lowest point then become our greatest point, isn't it? Because of what he did on the cross for us, when anything we do, we can now look to him for that. And that's what we then have. So at this point, so as you see, now we've gone the valley gate. We now end up right down the bottom, the, the south. And uh, maybe bottom is quite an apt thing. It's the dung gate. <laughs> so so, so um, I'd love to know what they did at the dung gate. Paul could maybe explain some of that. I don't actually know. Maybe I don't want to know. <laughs> you know it's a, but, uh, but yeah, it's the, 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 the dregs. Now, what do you think of, though, when you think of dung? Politely. So it's a, a scripture. Well, a scripture that always comes to my mind is in Philippines, because uh, where, where Paul says that whatever I had, I gained, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Because I count everything as loss because of the par passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, that word rubbish that he uses there is actually the word dung. We could actually use another word these days for it, but, but uh, we won't... Uh, politely use it here, but it's actually talking about the fact that he counts all the great things he did has become rubbish. Now, when we come to Christ, Christ hit the valley. God then exalted him to the highest place. But what does he do when, when he exalted him? He actually offers us the opportunity now to go to God through him. But something has to happen first. We have to repent. We have to, to come to God. You can't come. You know, there's that song we sing, just as I am. And in one sense, it's a beautiful song. In another sense, it can be a bit misleading because uh, you, it is just as you are, but you've got to surrender who you are 
to come to God. So when you come to Christ, it's a total surrender. It's, it's a, you know, in the Second World War, when the Japanese had to sign a surrender and they'd had those, the, the, the atom bombs had been put down and so Japan had to sign a surrender to the Americans, they actually signed something that was an unconditional surrender, which means that uh, they were, the Americans could now do whatever they wanted. And uh, though that might be history-wise, I don't know where people stand on all that, but, uh, but that's actually what we need to do to God. When we come to God, is repent means we realize that we are sinners. We realize that we've lived a broken life. But we also realize that, uh, that only God can do something with that. And we, but to do that doesn't mean, because unfortunately what has been taught now, there's this, what they call cheap grace, where basically you don't have to repent, you just have to accept Jesus. And so long as you accept Jesus, you're saved, you're in. You know, that's it. Let me tell you, that's not what I read biblically. Biblically, I actually see that you need to come to God. You need to repent. You need to come and actually lay down your life and accept him, not just as Savior. You have to accept him as Lord. I don't, there's almost a teaching that you can accept Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. I don't see that scripturally. To me, you accept him as Savior and Lord. And it's, uh, so that's what I see here, this Dungate. So, so we're turning from Jesus, the first four, all on the life of Jesus. Now, how it actually, we have our walk with Jesus. And the part of, to start that, we need to repent, need to lay down our life. And that's the bottom of the gate. You'll notice now you, you turn around and you start going up on the east side. And the first gate you come to is the fountain gate. Now, I don't know what that reminds you of, but that reminds me of Jesus when he was, uh, he, went, he went to Jerusalem. Now, he didn't go to Jerusalem just when he got crucified. We also have some instances in the book of John where he goes to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles during the time of his ministry. And uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, he's there and he goes secretly. And then halfway through, he starts to preach. And then it says on the last great day, and it's on that day that the Jews actually have special sort of uh, um, displays that they actually do. And uh, he, his preaching talks right into that. But it's interesting what he says in John 7, verse 37 to 39. He says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And to me, that's a picture of this fountain. So we're coming to the fountain gate. We need to have God's spirit in us. In verse 39, he explains it. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When was the spirit given? Pop quiz. Pentecost. Okay, on the day of Pentecost. So, so to me, this is a picture of, of what actually happened. If you want, Jesus is now risen. He's now offering um, us this salvation. We can have this relationship with him. We need to repent and come to him, and, but he's offering us his spirit. And if you want to have new life, by the way, you can't have it through your wishful thinking. You can't have it by having a positive mental attitude. You can't have it any other way. The only way you can have it is if the spirit renews your mind, if you allow the Holy Spirit to come in. But when it comes in, when he comes in, he will flow out of you because, you know, that's, and, and the spirit will never come in and just dam up inside you. He won't become like, he will have to flow out. And we can have that living water flowing through us um, when we come to God. But then, of course, the next gate, as you're going up east, you'll see as you go halfway up, you've got the water gate. What's one of the first things you have to do when, you're, when you've been saved? Now, what's interesting is Peter, when he was talking, and, he, and the Holy Spirit's now filled them, they've gone out into the streets, they've spoken in tongues, and people could hear in their own languages. And uh, in hearing all this, they, they, they uh, come to Peter, and in verse, chapter, uh, Acts 2, verse 37, he says, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
we need to get baptized. And uh, it's interesting that it's, I unfortunately think a lot of us think it's an option. I don't believe it's an option. I actually think it's, it's the Bible sort of says when you're saved, you get baptized. It, it's, a, it's a thing that flows from it. Um, and so, so we need to then, the next step we need to do as a sign of obedience, we actually go out and we get baptized into Christ. And then there's a gate after that. And if you have a look at the water gate, there's a long gap. And right now, heading up east towards the top, you have this uh, horse gate. Now, now it's interesting, a horse gate. Now, now, these days, I think we would think of horses more for pleasure than anything else. You think, well, that's obviously a wealthy guy who's got horses. But remember in those days, what were horses? Horses were military. Those were the things that the army went out on. Horses were also their means of travel. If you wanted to get somewhere, you either had to go on foot or you could take a horse if you had enough money to do that. How do we travel today? Car, plane, <laughs> planes, trains, and automobiles. What is it that? It's a, we, we can go by bus. It's a, so we, we can actually use vehicles to travel. So I picture this as a, instead of the horse gate, it's the car park. Okay, this is, <laughs> this is where the cars are parked. Now, are the cars parked in a car park to stay there? Why are they there? They're there to go out. They're there to travel. A horse gate is only there because you're wanting horses to go out. You're wanting them to come in, but you're wanting them to go out. When Jesus went up, at the end of Matthew, he gave the Great Commission. And we all know what that Great Commission is. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We're commanded to go out. And I think once you're a Christian, once you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, once you've been baptized, God wants you to go out. Now, does that mean going to other nations? Sometimes, yes. I think, you know, we were too often to say no. But, but in actual fact, going means to go to those who are unsaved. Now, I think going means going to the unsaved here. It means going to your own family. It means going to the people in, around in, in Liverpool. But it also means having a heart now to want to take the gospel out to other nations. Having a heart now for other cultures. You know, because often what actually happens, you want to stay in your culture, stay comfortable and stay where you are. But this means actually being prepared to go out. Um, and then you have, after that, if you notice, straight after that, you've got the East Gate. Now, the East Gate is quite interesting. If you read in Ezekiel, now in Ezekiel, it has a picture. Ezekiel was given a picture of the temple. And in the temple, he saw the Spirit of God. But he saw the Spirit of God moving through the temple. And slowly, what he noticed was the Spirit of God was leaving the temple. Here was the temple that was the place where, the, the, where God's presence was, was meets with man. And the Spirit of God was leaving the temple. And then it left the city. And it left, if you look in Ezekiel um, eleven twenty three, it left by the east gate. And where did the east gate lead? That actually went out to Babylon, to exile. So the Spirit of God left the temple to go to exile, where the, all the, the, the people had gone into exile. But because of this, the Jews have a tradition that when the Messiah comes, he's going to come back through the east gate. And the East Gate, of course, is uh, the place where you see the rising sun. And what, when did Jesus rise from the dead? On a Sunday morning at sunrise. You know, he, he, he actually is the, he is the one that they're looking for. So the East Gate, if you, in Titus 2.13, it says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, are we waiting for that? And to me, that is the next great thing, isn't it? We were talking with Margaret earlier about, uh, you know, when we die, what actually happens, you know, we're in heaven worshiping there and uh, looking down at us worshiping here. But, you know, what we would long to happen before we die, wouldn't we love Christ to come? Christ to come back. Are we looking and longing for and hoping for the return of Jesus? I remember back in the day when, uh, when uh, the rapture was such a big thing. 
and we all got taught that uh, um, you had to be ready for the rapture. Now, personally, I, I don't think that's the way it's all going to happen. So it's, um, I've, my theology has changed a lot since then. But, uh, but the, the fact that we were actually longing for the return of Jesus. And, and that's, where, where's that gone? Has, has things happened and we've sort of lost that sort of passion? But that should be our passion. We should be looking to and longing for the return of Jesus, the East Gate. And you know that one day, the East Gate, he will come in. Now, the Bible talks about the fact that he'll come back to the temple. Some people believe that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem and that he will actually physically actually arrive the first point of call at the temple in Jerusalem. But we also know that the church is the temple of God. So he is going to arrive at, the, at his church and come in. And, uh, but are you looking for that? Are you longing for that? Are you waiting patiently for Christ to return? And... Uh, that's wonderful, but you know, we then think that's the end. Nine gates, Christ's return, that's wonderful. But there is a tenth gate, unfortunately. The tenth gate is the inspection gate. And that just reminded me of 2 Corinthians 10, 5 verse 10, where it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Do you know that one day, all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I know that there's a strong teaching that, uh, oh, no, once you're saved, you don't have to worry about judgment. But that's not what I see scripturally. We will all still have to stand and give an account for what we've done with Christ, for what we've done with the gifts he has given us. We, you know, he has given you gifts, but he hasn't given you gifts just to bless you. He's given you gifts to use. And how have we used those gifts that he's given us? And one day we will have to give an account of what we've done. And... Uh, I think that, that, that's sort of quite a humbling thing to make us sort of motivate us to, now our salvation is secure. You know, that's, that's not what we're actually talking on in this. But one day we will still have to give an account of what we have done with what Christ has given us. And so those are the gates. And as I said, isn't that, uh, if, uh, on the back of the sheet I've given you by there, you'll find that I've listed all the gates and uh, all the scriptures and that. So you can go through that and look at that yourself. Um, it's, uh, as I said, that's not, by the way, that is not, totally uh, sacred that I put on there. That is my, my sort of view on that. But it is a cool way to remember all those gates' names and to get stories from what they're actually there. So let's, let's now go on. So in that chapter, we actually had um, all, the, all the gates and the walls being built. And, uh, but in it, you started to see, you'll start to see when you read through it that there's some opposition happening. But Nehemiah chapter 4, we see this opposition coming to, to the fore. So I'm going to read now Nehemiah chapter 4, the first nine verses. Tis now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of the brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heap of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah and the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Here, and then notice, Nehemiah, what does he do? This all happens. So he prays. Hear, O our God, for we are despaired. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they are provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And notice verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard what the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. 
And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause commotion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So I'm going to look at the, the opposition in, the, in the, the last part. But this part, I just want to look at the wall that they were building. So they started building this and they got the wall to a point where, where it was uh, half the height and it was actually becoming a solid foundation. But the people were looking at it saying, well, that's never going to last. And that just reminded me in Matthew 24, when uh, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and they were saying, you know, well, you know, we are the sons of Abraham. And so Jesus gives them a, a parable. And at the end of the parable, he says this in Matthew 21, verse 42, he says, Jesus said to them, you have never, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. The one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Christ is actually the stone that is being built. And I was actually thinking these walls, as I said, they were built there as a protection. What is the wall of protection that you have on your life right now? What wall are you building? And do you know that we can build private walls of protection? We can actually shield ourselves from the world where we don't get let anyone in. And uh, we keep ourselves safe. But that actually is not the wall it's talking about. The wall we should be building is the wall of Christ. We need to be the house that's on the rock. The house that, uh, that won't fall down. Um, Christ actually said to Peter in uh, Matthew 16, 18, he says that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So who builds the church? Christ does. And as a matter of fact, if you look at 1 Peter 2, 5, we are called living stones as part of that wall. We need to be part of this wall that is being built. But are you allowing Jesus to put you where you, you need to be? Are you allowing him to place you in that wall? But I was then also thinking about what wall are you building? And a lot of that wall builds, that you build depends on who you think God is. You know, if you, if you see God as a, um, a tyrant, the wall you will build will always be to protect you, yourself from that tyrant. It will be to, to sort of make sure that you're safe. If you see God as Father Christmas well, your, your wall will probably be very, very floppy because all you're wanting is something that, uh, that uh, you know, maybe you'll build a chimney so Father Christmas can get down. It. I don't know, you know. It's a <laughs> but but uh, we need to make sure we're building a wall that Christ is on. And we need to, and if you know who Christ is, if you know, we know his name. He's told us who he is and the names of God. We, you know, if you go through that, you'll find out that the God that we worship is almighty. He's the creator of everything. He is the father. He is the, he is the one that started everything. We owe our existence to him. But he's also the Savior. He's also the one that has mercy on us. He's also the one who is love. He's also the one that, that is willing to come down to where we are in what we're doing. But he's also the sustainer. He's also the, the one who sanctifies us. He's the one that can give you the power to face whatever you need to face. What wall are you building? It's, it's how, you know, your relationship with God. How are you actually building that? And then we have a look at the opposition that is here. And, uh, let me read, and, and I love the way that uh, now Nehemiah, this opposition's come up against him, and, he, and now they're trying to build this wall. They've got halfway, but now they're running into a lot of difficulties. These guys are coming against them to stop them, and so they're having to now work on the wall at the same time as protect themselves. And I want to read what they, how they actually do this. If you st go to Nehemiah 4 from verse 15, it says, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coat of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall, building on the wall. 
Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had a sword strapped at his side when he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work and half of them held their spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took of our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. There was a scripture that uh, actually states in Revelation where it says that uh, do not be caught naked uh, when, when, uh, when someone comes back, sleeping naked, you know, so, so always be dressed and ready with, to go. And at that point, I used to actually sleep naked, but uh, I was a teenager. But after that, I stopped because I thought the last thing I want is Jesus to return and uh, me to have to go rushing out. Uh, maybe I took that a little bit too literally, but, uh, <laughs> but here we see them, what they're doing is that they're actually, they're having to face the reality of life, but they're not stopping to do the work. And uh, you know that we are called to do the work of Christ. I've spoken about the fact, oh, what are you prepared to do with Christ? And God has given you a task to do, but you also have to live in this world. And you know, to live in this world means that you have to not be silly, you know, not, not be foolish in how you do things. You're going to have to hold down a job. You're going to have to put in the hours at work. You're going to have to get your children to school or go to school yourself. You're going to have to, there are things that you have to do and to just survive here. But don't let them become everything you also need to make sure that you're focusing on doing what God has called you to do. But, uh, so, so that's the one thing, is to always be ready, to know that even what you, whilst you're doing that work, that you're still focusing on Christ, that you bring Him into all that you're doing. But even more than this, I was looking at the fact that uh, these, if you go through chapter 3, which I didn't read, it talks about the different families and different parts. And there's some, some parts have a lot more families, and others seem to only have one or two. And I'm assuming that where the walls were the most broken, that's where they'd put the most people to fix them. And they, a lot of them seem to be that the people were fixing the walls where they lived. So it'd be where, where they actually stayed. But here he's saying that when they're doing this, because the enemy are so, so um, trying to get to them, that if you hear the enemy attacking someone else, be ready to drop what you're doing and go help that person. And we've got to be ready for each other. And I was actually thinking about this, and it was interesting. Uh, Sue was praying in the prayer meeting this, uh, this, this morning. And... Uh, she was talking about the, the fact of what are we ready to do for God? You know, are we, you know, are we ready to be made inconvenient for what God wants us to do? And, uh, and I was thinking that's exactly what I, I believe here. Are you prepared to be inconvenienced for God? Because a lot of the time, and I'll be honest, I fall into that category. I want to keep my own life and I don't really want to get disturbed by everyone else. But in actual fact, God is calling us to be inconvenienced. You know that he was prepared to be inconvenienced for us. He was prepared to give up heaven to come to earth to be inconvenienced for us. When we were in Zimbabwe, I thought I'd give some examples from Zimbabwe. Um, we had, uh, uh, first of all, there was the, the Anglican church in Zimbabwe. I don't know if a lot of you know the, the different, the, what happened to the Anglican church there, but the government decided that the Anglican church owned too many of the assets in Zimbabwe, the land and the buildings, and had too much money in the bank. So the government actually appointed a man to be the head of the Anglican church. Now, I don't know if you know it, but that's not really the done thing. That's, uh, you know. so, so the Anglican church, though, had already, there was an archbishop there already. So we ended up with a situation where we had two guys that were leading the Anglican church in Zimbabwe. 
So what actually happened though, because the government was on the side of the one guy, he actually arrested the other guy. And uh, we, we suddenly found, like, like for example, one, one Anglican priest, he went home and found that someone had broken into his home and robbed his home. So he went to the police station and said, my home's been robbed. So the police said, no problem. And they arrested him and put him in jail for robbing his own house. So, so, and you know, so you listen to the thing, what? <laughs> but that, that's what was happening there. So we then as churches, there was this part of me that was saying, it's the Anglican church. It's, uh, you know, are, are they the strong Christians like us? No, we're the strong Christians. Tell you what, we'll just keep to ourselves over here. We won't get involved in that. Because if we get involved in that, we're going to get tarred with this, this bad brush. You know, but uh, of course, God then challenges you straight away, doesn't he? I mean, God comes along and says, no, wait, whoa, whoa. You know, the, the guy is walking along the road when, when he fell down. Um, you know, it's uh, who actually stopped to help him? It was the Samaritan. It wasn't the priest. It wasn't the Levite. It was actually the Samaritan. And so a lot of us as church leaders actually decided we wanted to get on side with the Anglican church. Now, at that point, we didn't have a place where we were meeting. So we couldn't offer them a venue. But what a lot of the churches did like the Presbyterian church down the road that became a good friend of ours, what they did, they allowed them to come in and they would meet. So they'd have their service and they would finish early so the Anglican church could come in after them and have a meeting there in their premises. And uh, so, so the church, and what was interesting, by the way, the, the guys running the Anglican churches thought that if they put new leaders in, all the members would actually stay part of the church. But that didn't happen. The members, because the church is not the building. And you know, even with the Anglican church, the church is not the building, the church is the people. And the people actually left, and they actually, and a lot of the Anglicans we spoke to, this was a faith stepping out for them. They had to say, was our faith real? Were we prepared to stand on our faith? But also the, our churches, we had to make a stand. Now, Jeanette and I, we went along to some of their services. We actually, to, just to be with them, to show that we as a leader of this church are coming to this meeting to stand with you, our brothers. But let me tell you, that was inconvenient. It was, uh, and it was at the wrong time, isn't it? And, it's, and you're sort of thinking, what's going to happen? We had another friend of ours who the, there was war vets were going on and there was a lot of violence happening. And he was, so he sent me a message and I was in Harare. He sent me a message saying, please don't come and visit us right now because if you come in, they're just going to come and attack us and you won't be safe. So I said, fine. He sent the message to a friend of his in South Africa, another pastor. So that pastor got on an airplane, flew to Zimbabwe and went and stayed in his house. He says, let them come. And that just, you, you want to know what that did for me, because it made, you know, I was living in Harare at the time, and I hadn't done that, but he'd been prepared to go stand with his brother whilst he was going through this time. What are you prepared to do? We had a situation where we also opened up, we had a house that we were renting, or it was actually given to us, so we turned it into a hospital, but it was an illegal hospital, because a lot of the people used to get beaten up and left in the sides of the road. And the government then put out an, an order saying anyone who goes to medically help these people will be put in jail and, you know, and tortured. <laughs> so, so, so what actually, so what, and uh, the doctors, the Christian doctors, what did they do? The Christian doctors at nighttime, they would go out in the night and find these people in the bush, bring them back to the hospital fix them, but they couldn't stay in the hospital because now that they're fixed, they, they, and a lot of them had had hands cut off and things like that. So it was really horrific what they'd done. But uh, they, they, uh, they then took these people and said, we've got to put them somewhere to be looked after. So they asked for churches to open up houses to become secret houses for these places, for these people to come stay in. And we opened up our house. Let me tell you, I used to be terrified of getting the phone call at night to say that the army had raided the place. And the army used to go marching up and down past the house, and we'd get everyone inside the house to stay quiet. <laughs> you know, are we prepared to be inconvenienced? Now, I was actually saying to Jeanette, you know, we did all that, and it's so easy for me to now say, I've done my bit. 
you know, I, I've, you know, you know, it's now your turn. Come on, chaps, it's your turn to do it. But in actual fact, that's not how God works. You know, it's, it's, it's not, you, we can't do a tick and say, I've done it. Are you prepared to be inconvenienced? If, if we hear a call now in this country that somewhere in the church is, is actually under threat, would we be prepared to go stand with them? Even if they're not our denomination or even if they, they're not our flow. And, uh, and I actually just felt that was a challenge to me. You know, that, that we as Christians, we, we need to be able to stand together. Because it's who unites us. It's actually Christ that unites us. So anyway, that, those are the three points I actually thought of making with this. Um, to look at Nehemiah building the gates, the walls, and the opposition to him. And the gates, that Christ is our gate. He is the only way. And the, the picture you have of all those gates that actually show us the life of Christ and show us our walk with Christ, how we can go deeper with Christ. The walls that we're building, what walls are we building in our relationship with, with God? Are we making sure we're founded on the rock that is Christ? And with the opposition, are we prepared to stand together? Are we prepared to actually be inconvenienced for Christ? And in all of this, if we remember the one gate, it actually was the gate of uh, um, the new covenant. Do you know that uh, none of this should come on us as, uh, as guilt? We do this because we're saved. We don't do this to be saved. We do this because of where we are. We've been given so many great things from Christ, and we work from here.